My uh, task for today is to talk to you about the beginning of Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. Um, I just had you read some selections from the very beginning of uh, book one of the Ethics and a little bit from the beginning of book three of the Ethics. What I want to do today is just talk to you first and foremost about Aristotle's life and times just a little bit, uh, give you a bit of a picture of him as a person. Um, then I want to talk about book one, where Aristotle discusses the highest good for human beings. And this is going to involve him having an argument with Plato, or at least with a certain interpretation of what Socrates argues in the Republic. Then finally, very briefly, I want to talk a little bit about what happens in book three, where Aristotle um, lays out his account of, of action, of choice, and of deliberation. And these are going to be important. And I will say, you see from this, Aristotle's style is quite different, uh, and Aristotle's texts are quite different from Plato's. And I would say, above all, what you can expect from Aristotle is um, a certain sort of analytical style, in the sense that he wants to break problems down into parts, that's analysis, um, and make some progress on the elements that he's broken it down into before pulling things back together. Um, so sometimes this means uh, that things get a little woolly. It's hard to tell where things are going um, because he gets pretty far into the weeds. Uh, sometimes it means that he spends quite a bit of time um, sort of arguing with other existing uh, positions that are out there, predominantly ones that existed amongst Plato's students. Um, but we'll get back to that uh, when we get to the, the, to, into the content of book one, and we'll be dealing with that with our reading of the politics later on also. So Aristotle's life and times. He was born in 384 BCE uh, in a small town called Stagira in Macedon. He, um, his father was the personal physician to the king of Macedon, uh, King Amyntas at the time. And because of that, Aristotle had a, I mean, he probably grew up in the royal palace um, and he had a close connection to the Macedonian royal family uh, for most of his life. We'll come back to that. Um, his parent, I, and I should say, a lot of what we know about Aristotle's life is pretty shaky. Um, we have a fair bit of ancient testimony, but nothing or almost nothing contemporaneous. Um, so it's hard to say how much of this is true and how much of it is later mythologizing of Aristotle's life. We do know with great certainty that um, Aristotle's parents both died when he was relatively young um, and that he was raised uh, through his teen years by a guardian. And that when he was about 17, his guardian sent him to Athens to study at Plato's Academy. This would have been in 368, 367, somewhere in there, um, BCE. He didn't just stay at um, 
the academy for as long as you're going to stay at McGill. He uh, decided to hang out for a while, uh, and he stayed at the academy for 20 years. Um, after or at the end of that 20 years, that that his stint at the academy coincides with uh, Plato's death, or very close to the time of Plato's death. And there is some discussion in the ancient sources that claims that Aristotle left uh, the academy um, and when he did because uh, he was not happy with Plato's bequeathal of the academy to other, sp other students. Uh, he bequeathed to his student Specipus, and apparently Aristotle disagreed with this um, and, and left. Um, and I think we will come back to this. You may have seen this fellow, he, Specipus shows up in uh, book one of the ethics as somebody that Aristotle wants to argue with. After this, after he left Athens, uh, Aristotle traveled, um, got married, had a kid, studied, um, and then he went back to Macedon and uh, was appointed tutor to Alexander, the prince of Macedon, who became Alexander the Great. Um, so this is one of the most famous things about Aristotle's life is that he was tutor to Alexander the Great. Um, after Alexander greatly expanded the Macedonian Empire, um, um, he um, and took over all of Greece as well, um, Aristotle returned to Athens this was in about 335, and he founded his own school in Athens um, called the Lyceum, and he taught there for the next uh, 12 or 13 years. Most people think that this is when he produced most of the texts that have come down to us under his name. Now, um, Macedon conquered Athens as well. So most all of the Greek city-states uh, came under Macedonian sway during this period. Um, and that meant, I mean, Macedon was more of a hegemon, a uh, local hegemon than an, an outright uh, empire in the sense that Macedonian rule did not um, go to the level of uh, appointing local administrators. So local politics in Athens continued pretty much as it had. Uh, Athens had home rule, as it were, right? Um, continued to be, a, you know, they continued to have their democracy. But they didn't have an independent foreign policy. Uh, Macedon controlled their foreign policy. So Athenian democracy was restricted to domestic politics. But um, Alexander died in the East in 323. And when Alexander died in 323, a lot of the Greek cities rebelled against Macedonian rule. And there was a, there was a corresponding clampdown on uh, the Greek cities by Macedon. The, the armies of Macedon moved in um, and there, was, there were outbreaks of anti-Macedonian violence and the, the sentiment ran hard against Macedon in many of the Greek cities. 
including in Athens. That was bad for Aristotle because Aristotle was Macedonian. Aristotle was closely associated with um, both Philip and uh, Alexander. Um, and so there were charges brought against Aristotle for impiety um, in Athens in 323 uh, or 322. And rather than sticking around and fighting the charges, Aristotle fled. Um, and he went to his mother's estate in Uboya, where he died of natural causes uh, about a year after leaving uh, Athens in 322 BCE. So that's Aristotle's life. His school continued in existence uh, in his absence um, and after his death, and it continued in existence for hundreds of years thereafter. Um, his school was, was very successful. Um, We'll talk more about that uh, later on. So that's his life and times. Now I want to, what I want to do is I want to talk about uh, book one and book three of the Nicomachean Ethics. Um, the Nicomachean Ethics is so-called because Aristotle actually produced a few texts called the Ethics, but they were traditionally uh, dedicated to or associated with different people. So this Ethics was associated with or perhaps dedicated to Nicomachus. Um, and so it's called the Nicomachean Ethics. I want to start with the very opening lines of the Nicomachean Ethics um, and simply break them down a little bit because Aristotle does a lot uh, in those first lines. So I'm just going to read most of the first paragraph of Book 1, Chapter 1, starting at 1094a. Every sort of expert knowledge, that is techne. Um, so I, I'll supply some of the Greek terms because different versions of Aristotle's texts translate them very differently. Um, so I wanna make sure that you understand what's going on beneath the translation. So every sort of techne and every inquiry and similarly every action and undertaking seems to seek some good. Because of that, people are right to affirm that the good is that which all things seek. But there appears to be a certain difference amongst ends. Some are activities. Aristotle's word here is energia, which is a bit of a technical term for him. We'll come back to it, energia. While others are products of some kind. Here the word is um, erga, uh, that is works. Over and above the activities themselves. So there's a distinction here, uh, just I'll stop and back up. So he starts off by saying, we do everything for a reason. We, we do everything for a purpose. We do all, uh, you know, we act purposively. That's what we do. Um, and that purpose for which we act is something that we consider to be good, right? Some good or another. That's for the sake of which we act. Then he immediately draws a distinction, and this is classic Aristotelian move. He makes a general statement, and then he says, well, but we need to draw a distinction. And the first distinction he draws is between two sorts of goods. Some goods are works, are uh, products, are erga. That is, they are a thing or a result that is at the end of our action. So when you make a table, the good that you're aiming at is a table right? The table is something that results from your action. But on the other hand, some of the activities we engage in aim at a good that is imminent in the activity itself. That's energeia, 
right? They uh, aim at the activity. So um, to draw a distinction, so there are two ways, of, there might be two ways of playing a game, right? Uh, you might play soccer with your friends because you want to win, right? So in that case, the, the good that you seek is victory. And that's something that exists outside the game itself. It's, a, it's the result of successfully playing the game. On the other hand, you may not care that much about winning. You might just care about having fun. Um, having fun playing, that's something imminent to the activity itself. Um, so those are two different types of goals that we can have in engaging in an activity. We can either aim to produce a product that's external or a result that's external to the activity, or we can just engage in the activity for its own sake, as it were, right? Because the activity itself is something good that we think is, is worth doing. He continues, um, since there are many sorts of action and of expertise and of knowledge, their ends turn out to be many too. Thus, health is the end of medicine, um, a ship is the end of shipbuilding, victory of generalship, wealth of household management. But in every case where such activities fall under some single capacity, just as bridle making falls under horsemanship, along with all the others that produce the equipment for horsemanship, and horsemanship, along with every action that has to do with expertise in warfare, falls under generalship. So in the same way, others fall under a separate one. And in all activities, the ends of the controlling ones are more desirable than the ends under them, because it is for the sake of the former that the latter two are pursued. So here he draws a second distinction. If before he distinguished between two types of ends, they might be ends external to the activity or ends imminent in the activity itself. Here he distinguishes between two sort, uh, distinguishes between ends again. Some goods, some ends are instrumental. That is, we seek them for the sake of something else, right? Uh, that might be, that's true, for example, with tables, right? Uh, when I'm, if you make a table, uh, you want the table is the result and the goal of your table making activity, but you don't want the table for its own sake. Like you don't just set the table up and gaze at it and be like, ah, the table, right? You want the table because the table functions in a particular way. It, it does something for you. It allows you to eat your dinner or you sell it in the marketplace and allow somebody else to eat your, their dinner on it and you get money. You're doing that. You're building a table uh, the table itself is the good you're aiming at, but that good is itself instrumental to something else. It, it, uh, it refers to another good that it is for the sake of. On the other hand, though, he says that some goods are final. Um, and final goods would be ones that, I mean, the ultimate in a final good, a purely final good, would be one that we aim at for its own sake, and that we don't seek for the sake of anything else. And so that's where he goes next. Um, in um, chapter two of book one, he says, well, if there is such a thing, right? If there is an end, a good that we seek, that we wish for because of itself, that is that we seek for its own sake, 
And we wish for other things that we wish for, for the sake of it, right? Because of it. That is, it's the end of all the, of the other things that we seek. And we don't seek everything because of something else. For if that were the case, as he says, the sequence would go on to infinity, making our desire empty and vain. Then it's clear that this will be the good, that is the chief good, or the highest good for human beings. What Aristotle is saying here, I think, is that um, if there is some final good that encompasses or directs all the other goods that we seek in life, then this good would be, as it were, the point of living. That's the thing that we seek out of life above all else. And if life has a point, then that point is the good. That is the highest good for human beings. And that's what Aristotle is, he thinks that's true. And he thinks, and that's what he wants to set out to seek uh, and to clarify. What is the highest good for human beings? What's the point of human life? He also says in chapter two, one other thing that's going to be very interesting for us. Uh, and the, this is the real, one of the main reasons I wanted us to read this uh, part of the ethics before tackling the politics. He says that, well, if there's a point to life, um, if there is this highest good for human beings, then it seems like it would belong to politics to know and pursue this good. Um, so belong to politics, this, the translation you read has political expertise. The, the Greek is just hey politike, which is also the title of Aristotle's politics, um, or a, it's a slightly different version of the same word. Um, but hey politike means... Um, some sort of knowledge or of the things that pertain to political life. So Aristotle is saying that the aim of politics um, is securing this highest good for human beings. Now the question is, what is this? It would be nice to know what it is if, if there is such a thing. Well, Aristotle claims, uh, this is at 1295A19, line 19 or so, he claims that everyone agrees on the name of this highest good. Everybody agrees that the highest good for human beings should be called happiness or eudaimonia, which we've talked about before. Right? Um, and everybody agrees that eudaimonia amounts to living well and doing well. But they only agree on the name. Um, we don't agree on what happiness actually is, what it consists in, what its content is. There are four widely suggested candidates, however, um, and this is what he canvases in chapter five of book one. Some people argue that the life of pleasure is the highest good, or pleasure is the highest good, and the life devoted to pleasure is the, is the highest life for human beings. Some people think that honor is the highest good. And these people think that the life of politics is the highest form of human life. Others claim that contemplation is the highest good for human beings, that contemplation is happiness, and they pursue a philosophical life. 
And finally, some people claim that money-making is the highest good, is happiness, um, and they pursue such a life of money-making. Uh, Aristotle dismisses this one out of hand. He says, duh, this obviously is not it, because money is itself just a means, so money can't possibly be the highest end. Then he makes an aside. This is chapter six. Chapter six, he says, well, what about the good itself, right? Um, should we think that in order to seek the highest good for human beings, that we have to do so, that we might have to figure out first whether the good, there is a good that is sort of universal, something, a separate good itself by itself, he says. And obviously he's thinking of Socrates' claims in the Republic. Um, and he's very dismissive of these claims. He spends the entire chapter arguing against this claim that um, the good itself by itself should um, um, be important for human life at all. And I want to look just at one part of this argument because I think uh, it's the argument itself goes through a number of stages, and it's not always necessary to figure out what's going on at every step of the way, but I think the part of it is important. And this is uh, around 1297a, the first 10 lines or so of that section. Um, Aristotle says, perhaps some might think it better to get to know the good itself with a view to getting those goods that are capable of being acquired and doable. They might think that by having this as a kind of model, having the good itself as a kind of model, we shall be able better to identify those things that are good for us, and in that case, to attain them. Well, the idea has a certain plausibility, but it seems not to be in accord with what we find in the various sorts of technine. For all of them seek some particular good, and though they look for whatever is lacking, they leave out knowledge of the form of the good. And yet it's hardly likely that all of the artisans, all the experts, should be unaware of so great a resource and should fail even to go looking for it. But it's also difficult to see how a weaver or a carpenter will be helped in relation to his craft by knowing this good itself, or how someone who has seen the form itself will be a better doctor or a better general. And then this last line is important. For the doctor appears not even to look into health this way. What he looks into is human health, or perhaps rather the health of this individual, for he deals with his patients one by one. Um, there's a famous painting uh, um, from the Renaissance called the School of Athens, which you have certainly seen before. And at the center of the School of Athens are portraits of Plato and Aristotle. And they're talking to one another. And Plato is like this. Plato is pointing his finger, which sort of looks like he's wagging his finger, but uh, it also means he's pointing above because it seems as if, you know, the natural reading of Plato's uh, dialogues and of the Republic is that you should look above. You should seek to get out of the cave and and inquire into the into the intelligible realm in general, and finally into the good itself, the source of all truth. 
Aristotle standing next to him has his hand out like this, gesturing sort of to the ground and to the world around us. This is indicative of, the, of precisely this uh, argumentative strategy that Aristotle makes. He says, he says, look, when people, when a doctor um, engages in medicine, they don't inquire into what health itself is. They, that doesn't impact their practice at all. Rather, what they do is they attend to the particular patients that they have, and they see on the basis of the particulars what makes their patients better and what doesn't. They don't need a theoretical knowledge of what health itself is in order to practice medicine and in order to be very good at practicing medicine. Rather, what they need is an attention to the world around them. And he says this generalizes. Right? We don't need the knowledge of the good itself to pursue the goods that we seek in life. Rather, we can become more intelligent about pursuing the goods of life by paying attention to those particular practices that we engage in and what they aim at. So there's a way in which Socrates in Plato's dialogues um, is a bit like, you know, the, the, um, like a, a toddler who asks why all the time, right? <laughs> says, well, why are you doing that? And you answer and you say, and the toddler says, well, why are you doing that? Or why do you want that? The toddler, and you answer, and the toddler says, but why that? And at some point, you get tired of answering these questions because you don't, you don't have to answer all of those why questions in order to know what it is you're doing um, and the particular good that you're pursuing right here and now. Um, and so Plato's inquiry into the good seems irrelevant. Aristotle's argument is, to the pursuit of the goods of this life. And we can start with those. And that's indeed what he tries to do. So his next question, his question uh, in chapter seven, is basically, well, what do humans do? What is it that we do? Um, and his answer is, well, you know, we do lots of things. <laughs> um, we live but that's not special to us. Like we're in, insofar as we live, we are no different from plants, right? So the highest human good isn't going to be found um, in just being like plants, right? We have, to, we have to think more precisely about what humans do. And he says, well, human beings sense, uh, we sense the world around us, but that doesn't make us any different from any of the other animals either. What we do, though, that is different from anything else that's special to us um, is that we use speech. We use logos. Um, and we use logos precisely to figure out what we do. And that is going to be the thing that Aristotle is going to hone in on. He's going to say, look, we have this capacity to speak, to argue, to uh, reason things out in speech. That's what is distinctive of human life. That's what makes human life different from any other form of life on earth. 
And the human good is going to have to be found by um, seeking out how to do what humans do alone in amongst uh, beings in the universe, what we do and how to do it well. And that's precisely where he's going to, that's precisely what he ends up arguing. Um, at the end of chapter seven, what he claims is that um, the human good turns out to be the activity of the soul in accordance with excellence, that is with, in accordance with virtue, in accordance with arete. Um, and if there is, are more excellences than one, in accordance with the best and the most complete. And he says, this over a complete life. What that means is that if there is a human good, if there's happiness, um, the highest human good, then it must be being a human, that is doing the human thing, that is um, living in accordance with logos and doing that well, that is with virtue or with excellence. Um, and so that's, that's what Aristotle, def that's what he thinks happiness amounts to. Happiness has to be a life lived well, a human life lived well. And that means it has to be a life lived in accordance with virtue um, over the complete course of that life. And that's, that's how he's going to define happiness. And that's what he thinks the goal of politics is, right? As a, as a field of study and a field of expertise. Um, so that's, that's, I'm going to, like that wraps up the, what we read for chapter one. I would just want to encapsulate that and set it aside for a minute. That's going to be what he's going to be inquiring into in the politics is, well, how can we live with one another such that we can be happy? And where happiness means living in accordance with virtue. Okay. Final thing that I want to talk then about is uh, book three. And I want to tackle book three because here Aristotle is concerned just if, if what it is that, I mean, in some sense, this has been implicit the whole time. He started off by saying, well, everything we do aims at some good. And then he ended up book one by concluding that human happiness, the highest good for us, must be doing something, must be living human life well. Um, and that means living in accordance with virtue. In other words, doing stuff is central. I mean, it's where he started and it's where he ended. Acting and acting well um, are absolutely at the heart of Aristotle's philosophy. And what he does in book three is he sort of breaks down what it is to act um, and indicates what it would mean to act well. Um, so I, I want to do this very, very quickly. Um, so first of all, in chapter one of book three, Aristotle claims that we are agents, right? That is, we um, are beings that act in the world. So, and, and as we saw, virtue pertains to action because virtue means doing something well. So 
in book three, chapter one, he asked the question basically, well, what is agency? What is it to act? Um, and he separates out different things. So uh, he, wants to, he wants to talk about what it is to willingly do something or to voluntarily do something. That's really what it means to act. We do lots of things. Some things we do involuntarily where, uh, you know, because we are, in some sense, we're the, the vector of a causality that comes from outside of us, right? If I uh, break a vase because somebody bumps into me and I fall into the table, right? I broke the vase, right? But I didn't do so voluntarily. It wasn't an action of mine. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, an expression of my agency. It was, I, I just got bumped into and fell into the vase. What happens to us in that way, um, things that we do involuntarily or unknowingly, right? That doesn't pertain to, that's not the, the stuff of virtuous living. Like accidents happen. Um, things happen to us, um, and we are we are forced by various circumstances to do to do something or to cause something. That's not what virtue is about, and that's not what living well is about. Living well that has to do with the the things we do ourselves, the things we do willingly and voluntarily. So one of the things that Aristotle, one of the claims Aristotle makes in here, uh, which I think is a very interesting and insightful claim, is that. Um, the things that people do that they didn't do voluntarily, you can identify those by whether they feel bad about them, whether they, it causes them pain to have done that, um, and whether they feel remorse. If, they, if it causes them pain, if they feel remorse, then that means that they acted either uh, inadvertently, unintentionally, um, or they acted unknowingly, out of ignorance. Um, we can come back to that at some point. Um, in, but in, then in chapter two, he builds on that. He says, so, okay, so we're concerned with action, with things we do voluntarily or willingly. But we're also concerned with acting according to logos, right? Acting, like acting, just doing things. That's something that babies and uh, deer can do also. So we want something more specific. We want to confine our attention a little bit more to action that, can, that also involves logos in some way. And that means action that involves deliberate choice, right? where we don't simply do something, but we um, do something deliberately. Right? We actually choose to do something. And what he says, uh, and this goes into chapter three, he says, well, when we deliberately do something, when we choose to do something, um, that means that we can reflect on what we're doing right, beforehand, and we can expand that deliberateness. Right? I mean, there's a pun here in English, right? that to act deliberately, that means you did so knowingly. Right? You knew what you were doing, and you did it it was, a, it was an active choice of yours to do it. It wasn't just something you did out of habit or um, without really thinking about it. But deliberation also means 
like really thinking or talking things over, right? Um, talking about considering various options and stuff like that. And, and that accords with what Aristotle is saying here. When we make a choice, that choice is a deliberate choice. And that means that there, it can be preceded by more or less deliberation. We can think and deliberate about what we're going to do before we do it. And he says in chapter three that when we do this, we deliberate about the means, not the end. So that is, when we deliberate, what we do is we think about how to go about doing something. What we're aiming for is not part of the deliberation. If what we're aiming for becomes part of the deliberation, that means it has become a means and we've set some other horizon of what it is that we're trying to accomplish, right? Um, so we, we, what we deliberate is, we deliberate about means, about how to act. And choice, when we make a decision, he says choice then is the deliberate desire of what is up to us. So I said last time when I was talking, wrapping up the discussion of Plato, that for Plato, ethics is about what's up to us. And that's here in Aristotle, in Aristotle too, right? Um, ethics is about uh, making choices. And that means um, deliberately desiring what is up to us. That is making up our mind to want something and to pursue it. Um, that's, that's the domain of ethics. And he wraps up this part that we read in chapter four by saying that well, there are two elements then to acting well, right? And if, if happiness consists in virtuous action, and virtuous action means acting well, then acting well has two elements. On the one hand, you have to wish for the right end. That is, you have to be wanting the right thing, wanting the right outcome, wanting the right, uh, having the right goal. And it also means you have to deliberate well in choosing the means how you pursue that goal. Right? Those two elements are independent of one another and virtuous action has to involve both of them. You have to see the right, you have to be aiming at the right thing and you have to be uh, deliberating well in choosing the means to achieve that. All of that is background. Um, it, it, what it does, what I, and the reason I wanted to have you read this is because Aristotle is going to presuppose all of these notions in his discussion of politics. He's going to presuppose this notion of action and this notion of choice. He's going to presuppose this distinction between the ends we wish for um, and the means that we deliberate on how, uh, you know, and choose from amongst. Um, and so it helps to have this sort of analytical framework of action and choice and virtue in mind than when we read the politics, because I think it will make his, his arguments there clearer.